This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 4 million members and supporters who are working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now, on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner, a climate activist living on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. And I'm Marianne Hitt, climate activist and director of the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign living in the West Virginia Hills. And this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. We are back, y'all. We are so excited to be back with our new season. We are going to be exploring spirituality and climate change. And this is not just for those of you who are part of a religious tradition or an organized religion or a faith tradition. This is for everybody, everyone out there who feels some sort of ache inside of yourself at the state of our world. And you know that the ancient wisdom traditions around the world have so much to teach us, both about how we grapple with these big questions of morality and justice and how we sustain ourselves when we are doing work that is very challenging in really difficult times. We'll be hearing from fascinating people from all kinds of different religious and spiritual backgrounds, from Buddhism to Islam to Christianity to a witch, and even some people who don't subscribe to any kind of you know, organized religion. And there are a couple of reasons that Anna Jean and I wanted to focus on on spirituality for this season. One, because it did give us an excuse to talk to some of the wisest people that we know about how we personally can stay strong, Um, but also because we know that many of our great social movements are rooted in a religious tradition, like Martin Luther King, Gandhi, the civil rights movement. Um, And there are great moral questions at the heart of the climate struggle, too, that we wanted to grapple with. And we expect a lot of you did, too. So we are so excited to get into this and share it with all of our listeners and to be back, um, to be back with a brand new season of No Place Like Home. One of our favorite podcasts ever is this beautiful show called The Liturgist. The hosts come from a variety of different Christian and evangelical backgrounds, but you know, as they've kind of evolved on their journey, one's an atheist, one's a Buddhist, one's a very progressive Christian, and they get together and they kind of wrestle with these big questions of our time. You know, racism, our relationship with our bodies, LGBTQ rights. And also climate change. And one of the hosts of that show, Mike McCarg, is our first guest on this season. And I cannot imagine a better way to kick this season off because he's known as Science Mike and he's kind of held down the climate charge for the liturgist throughout their tenure and is very beloved by lots of listeners out there. And we are so excited to kick off this season with him. But first, Marianne and I have some catching up to do. Marianne, I'm so glad to be back on No Place Like Home with you. Absolutely. Well, hello, Anna Jane, and so excited to be back here with you and all of our listeners. And tell us about your big adventures. Yeah, so... 
I've been, it's really been a lot, you know, like I've been doing podcast interviews, I've been working on this new Hollywood Writers Project, and then I'm still doing a lot of work on the Arctic Refuge campaign. We talk a little bit about that with Science Mike in this interview. I actually came up to Los Angeles to go see our friend William Matthews. He um, just did a big tour called Lost in Love. And um, he has been integrating a kind of a beautiful, like, visual story and also just storytelling piece into his concerts around climate change and his in his recent trip with Science Mike up to the Arctic Refuge. So I really, his kind of homecoming show was in Los Angeles, and it was a packed house. It's a beautiful record if you um, haven't had a chance to listen to it. And also our episode with William Matthews a while back was a great episode. Um, but yeah, it was it was really touching to see, hear all of their experiences going up to the Arctic Refuge and also to see how much it moved them and, you know, really calling on their listeners and, and the people in their audience to protect the Arctic and to protect our planet. And I, it just made, it really made me see how important this work is and how much it, it really does reach new people, especially when we approach it with uh, new voices and kind of more creative ways of, of telling the story. Well, it's definitely something you and I've talked about on this podcast for a long time is um, the need to connect with people's hearts as well as their heads. And so I I think it's great that you've made those connections between the liturgist and uh, their audience and the Arctic Refuge and climate change. And, you know, that's why it's the focus of this whole season, because I think there's a lot of deep and powerful um, wisdom and also strength uh, that we can we can gain from exploring all of that. So. Uh, I'm glad that you have made those connections, and um, William is one of the liturgists, as is Science Mike, and we had such a great conversation with him. Yeah, and I hope people will also go check out the Liturgist Arctic episode if you haven't heard it yet. It is absolutely gorgeous and heartbreaking and so needed. So we are so excited to get to the interview, but first, uh, this season we are asking you all, our dear listeners, to send us an audio postcard that responds to this question. Is there a reading or a prayer or passage that means a lot to you that you would want to share with No Place Like Home family? Let's listen to this audio postcard from one of our listeners. Hi, my name's Allison. I'm a listener from Columbia, Missouri. I would like to read a passage from a book called You Are Here by the Zen Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh. If you feel irritation or depression or despair, recognize their presence and practice this mantra. Dear one, I am here for you. You should talk to your depression or your anger just as you would to a child. You embrace it tenderly with the energy of mindfulness and say, dear one, I know you are there and I'm going to take care of you, just as you would with your crying baby. There is no discrimination or dualism here because compassion and love are you, but anger is too. All three are organic in nature, so you don't need to be afraid. You can transform them. I like to think of that whenever I'm feeling frustrated with myself for the feelings that I'm having around the climate crisis or anything else, really. So I hope it helps you too. Thanks. So when we interviewed Science Mike for this episode, we both came away feeling so moved and so inspired and really excited for this season. 
Yes, faith and religion, spirituality, magic, whatever you want to call it, has come up on this show so many times over the years, and it feels really good to be turning our full attention to it this season. We couldn't think of a better person to kick things off than Science Mike, who's from one of our favorite spiritually-focused podcasts, The Liturgists. So let's just dive in and share this conversation, which we did edit down a bit for length, but I'm telling you, it was hard to pick out our favorite parts. So Science Mike grew up in Tallahassee, Florida. Go South, go Deep South. Um, And he grew up as an evangelical Christian, one who loved science. I grew up like not just conservative evangelical, but Southern Baptist. Mm. But I was like a happy, I I liked it. How could I not? I was a a straight male. But uh, (laughs) what I experienced in the Baptist church was actually a lot of people talking about caring for the earth. Mm. The church I grew up in was, um, I guess, slow enough to not have been caught up in the movement towards this moral majority politicalization. So the SBC of my youth was actually pretty anti-political, didn't want to be involved in politics, cared a lot about creation care, understood science to be uh, a means of understanding God's work in the world but also fundamentalist biblical literalism. So I had this tension between loving and trying to understand the world scientifically and a pretty non-scientific cosmology that was handed to me. Were you like a literal, like, six-dayer? Six-dayer, yeah. (laughs) And for those of you who were not raised evangelical, that means that um, you believe that, like, the world was literally created in six days. And about 6,000 years old. Yep. Yeah. So it's a real, it's a real lift. It's a very limited world With the fossil record. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, grew up still a Baptist. You know, had a crisis of faith, became an atheist. I was an atheist for a few years. Really liked it. Lost all my friends. No. Uh, and then I had a mystical experience where I felt like I was in God's presence. But as an atheist, I understood that probably to mean that I had a tumor in my brain that was causing hallucinations. (laughs) So I went to see a neurologist and said, I'm having, I need, I have brain cancer. I need a brain scan. And the neurologist is like, well, that's a very specific diagnosis. (laughs) Could I get more? And I said, well, I'm seeing lights that aren't there and hearing voices that aren't there. And he says, yeah, that's worth a look under the hood. So I got a brain scan, and I think I might be one of the first people to cry when they did not have a brain tumor hmm. because it meant I had to, in some other way, relate to that experience. So since then, I've been um, a hippy-dippy weirdo mystic I love it. with Me like too. Christian themes. Mm. But um, if I'm a Christian, I'm the kind of Christian who really – likes, appreciates, and accepts everybody's faith experiences. So, um, The best kind of Christian, yeah, in and, my humble opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and my, uh, my worldview is still you know, pretty materialistic, pretty scientific. So it's an uneasy marriage. So you talked about this a little bit, your understanding of God's creation. And I wondered if you could speak more to just what... In your in the kind of evangelical Southern Baptist upbringing that you that you were raised in, can you talk more to what the perspective was for caring for the earth? Was it mostly like God's coming back, we don't have to worry about this, or was there more of a stewardship ethic? I know churches kind of run the gamut. There was a stewardship ethic, absolutely. 
you know, my grandparents, who were very conservative evangelicals, were practically naturalists. You know, I remember uh, they had a farm and growing up on it. Uh, I loved, I'd stay a week or two weeks during the summer, and we'd get up in the morning, and we'd just go out and observe wildlife and living things for hours. And um, they didn't have any scientific training, but what they had was a lifetime of observation. And they viewed tending and caring for the land and the livestock and the crops and the wild areas around it as an ongoing stewardship that began in the Garden of Eden. Mm. You know, I think uh, when I look back on my grandfather's farming practices uh, today, they'd probably be trendily called permaculture. Mm. It wasn't until I got older and the politicization of evangelicalism began that I started to see this like the market is more important than the land shift entering into religious spaces, which was really kind of gross and confusing to me. Um, but it was a subtext. It was never overt. But one thing that's like shocking for me now in seeing evangelicals, you know, be some of the strongest opponents to matters of climate justice is just how antithetical that was to the evangelicalism I grew up in. I mean, it just it seems like a completely different tradition. And um, it took me a long time to come to terms with how things could switch so quickly. I mean, I'm realizing there's a lot of um, grooming in the evangelical faith that I think was accidental toward that makes it very, very prone to authoritarianism, which lets leaders quickly shift a lot of minds on topics. But for someone who was a Baptist child who, with his grandmother, uh, pick up baby birds that had been falling out of a nest and we'd climb up and put them back in their home and pray for them. Uh, it was a shocking shift and seemed sudden. The entire arc of the Hebrew and Christian Bibles speak to God's delight in creation, the careful process and curation that God took in creating the natural world, the careful ways in which, especially the Hebrew Bible, speak of caring for the land in such a way that it supports the people, including the people that don't have enough. God is above almost anything. Well, God, I guess, primarily in the Christian Bible is uh, known as loving, but God is also depicted as being extraordinarily creative. In the creation poem, God going through era after era of creation and calling all of it good. God delighting in the act of creation and those things which were created. God mourning in the Bible, in Scripture, especially the Hebrew Bible, in times where natural lands uh, had to be destroyed or reset by either man or God. As someone who's read the Bible many, 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 many times, I don't know how one can step away from the Bible with anything other than an understanding of that the God described in this text, if you accept it, and I know many people don't, but if you accept this text, you are seeing a picture of a God who loves creation. And uh, the other kind of vein I can see happening is 
in in the Hebrew Bible, this these admonitions to subdue the earth. And I would argue that a, a good read of that text would understand that that subduing is uh, an ancient people's exploration of what separates humanity from the rest of life on this planet, this strange awareness we have around our agency. And there really is no question, looking at the fossil record or ancient history, that humanity is going to subdue the question. What I see interestingly laid out in the Hebrew Bible are the terms of that. Again, this, you know, this ongoing care. We were recently at our friend William Matthews' show here in L.A. where he's been on tour in addition to gifting the world just amazing music. He also has been talking about climate justice and going mm-hmm. up to the Arctic Refuge and doing a presentation that was just so, um, I, I don't know, I, I, I cried. There's such a power to combining art and advocacy. I think that you can just reach people on on levels that you can't do when you're yeah. you know, giving a keynote presentation or a, on a panel. But we did a, a Q&A afterwards, and you said something that really struck me that even though uh, facing climate change can be very heartbreaking and can generate a sense of hopelessness, and I've struggled with that as well at different points, that being with the Gwich'in helped give you courage because they were mm-hmm. they were still fighting. And I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could speak to that some. Yeah, well, I mean, think about what tends to shut us down. I mean, it's privilege, right? It's privilege. What shuts me down? My lady lost an election. Oh, gosh, it's hopeless. I'm done. What more can I do? My, I, I was, I'm with her, and she lost. Well, we do have kind of like an intensely terrible person who won. Absolutely. But, no, but, but, I, mean, I, but yeah. I mean, compared to what the Gwich'in have faced, yes, it's like no the comparison. way Donald Trump has impacted my life uh, is not in the realm of what the Gwich'in have faced with America. It's just night and day. And so we all like, well, what are we going to do? Trump's in office. Like, it's hopeless. Um, And seeing the resolve of the Gwich'in people over time, over hundreds of years, with a literal existential threat, yeah, it reset when I feel like I can give up, which is now never. I can never give up anymore. If I give up because things are difficult or I give up because the trajectory seems bad, then I like profane the work of the native people who've been protecting this land since before my family arrived here, certainly before I was born. Um, I was so inspired by their bravery. Sarah, do you remember Sarah? Her good cheer with us. She didn't just do the work. She hosted us in her home. She took us through her community, including in ways that were difficult for people who, who, who didn't, frankly, probably want to see us there. Her patient gentle stewardship with the next generation who you know they they have the same the same struggles that everyone does with young people that uh their noses are in their phones all the time and creating their own digital subculture 
um, I don't know, I was just, I was just inspired. You also mentioned um, also feeling sad and also feeling um, sort of a profound sense of loss. And, you know, for a lot of people on climate, that can be paralyzing. And it actually, because of that, uh, they they check out. They just, they don't want to look too closely or too directly at it. I just wonder if you have thoughts about how religious traditions, faith, anyone's personal spiritual journey can help them work through that feeling of wanting to turn away because obviously a lot of religious traditions have, you know, are built on stories of people persevering despite great difficulty that they can't see to the other side of. And I think for a lot of people right now, that's the way the climate struggle feels. Yeah, that's a great question, Mary. I think for Christians, um, that is the dominant narrative of the Christian story. Um, starting with, gosh, Moses probably is like, uh, persevering against impossible odds starts with Moses and then is just echoed over and over and over through the entire arc of the Christian Bible. That's already baked into the text. That's already baked into the experience. I would not call myself a Christian anymore if all I had were um, Dutch and German theologians. Although I grew up a Protestant, Protestantism is not like the the fire in my bones, the reason I would look in, look someone in the eye and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. The Christianity I adhere to uh, is a combination of the great wisdom of the desert mothers and fathers that that we see probably most displayed today in the Greek Orthodox Church, and the beautiful work of liberation theology that began in Central and South America and then was uh, also beautifully embodied and developed by um, theologians of color. And the way I find motivation in the world is my faith, and my faith is based on marginalized people who've taken a colonizer's religion and turned it into a story of liberation from persecution against impossible odds. There is such a resiliency and a beauty and a vibrancy to the Christian faith that I see embodied by my Latinx friends. Um, There is such a resiliency in the African-American and black church that is simply not matched by the political machinations of white Protestantism. And so... For me today, I find strength and I find courage in indigenous people and in women and in people of color and especially in women of color who um, society puts the most obstacles in front of and still they foster and create communities. 
they are some of the most active and engaged people politically, despite headwinds that I certainly couldn't imagine. They are way ahead of me on their personal carbon footprint. <laughs> um, by, by factor after factor, the way I find hope is to say, I don't have to figure out what to do next. Other people already have. If I follow the wisdom of the Gwich'in people and their perseverance and the sacred relationship they have with the land, the world becomes a better place. If I follow the example of Mary Ann and Anna Jane and I speak clearly on the heart of what affects us emotionally in climate and I communicate that clearly with others in a way that invites them into the solution, the world becomes a better place. If I listen to all the amazing research and, and applied learning someone like Andre Henry has in organizing towards social action, the pieces to the puzzle towards a solution already exist. No one needs me as a white Christian man to show up and fix everything. All I have to do is show up willing and ready to do the work that marginalized people have already organized. And for me, that speaks to the heart of my faith. The supposed Messiah of my religion was a brown-skinned Palestinian living under Roman occupation. He struggled against Gosh, not just religious authorities that were in service of a puppet government, but at the time, the most powerful military empire to ever exist in the world. And what excites me about that Christianity is that both Jesus and later Paul invited Romans themselves into that faith. And as a white male American, in the biblical narrative, I'm an Egyptian. I'm a Roman. I'm a citizen of powerful empire holding the world underneath its boot. And it's my responsibility as a person of faith to work against and take apart the very empire that offers me power because to fail to do so is to fail to be like Christ. So we are diving into faith on this season of No Place Like Home. And just to close out, do you have any advice for us? What do you think our listeners really need to hear right now? You already do it so well. Um, hope. We're, we're in this season where like probably if you're on this season like ours, the hallmark of their faith experience is being disenfranchised and let down by the tradition they grew up in and wondering what faith means to them now, if anything. And if we, as people of faith, are showing ways to be responsive to climate, we not only help people address this source of existential anxiety around our natural world, but we also help them relate to their own life experiences in a way that's maybe more redemptive and therefore like psychologically beneficial. Um, that's why I'm such a fan of your podcast is you're helping people 
the people who leave their faith are actually the idealists who believed it. And you're helping these people who have formed this defensive, cynicistic armor recover part of what made them a person of faith in the beginning. so incredibly excited to share this conversation as we kick off this new season. Science Mike is just one of the biggest hearts that I've ever known, and he brings such a generous spirit to you know how we work on and talk about the climate crisis. If you want to hear more from him, be sure to check out his show, The Liturgist, and also Ask Science Mike. And as he said, you know, I think we all are idealists um, at our core, even when life puts a cynical armor around us and it may be time to peel back those protective layers and really get at the core of what it means to face climate change as whole people with a whole heart and spirit. We hope you'll join us for that journey this season. Thank you to the wonderful band River Wireless for our theme music and thank you to our sponsor, the Sierra Club. No Place Like Home is distributed by the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. This episode was produced by Allison Wilson. You can really help us get the word out about the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts and leaving us a review there. That is the best way that you can help new people find the show. And join this conversation between episodes by following us on Twitter at NPLH Podcast. And remember, there is no place like home.